today, why political rhetoric should be a resource for egalitarian politics, but instead is usually boring or obnoxious. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Rob Goodman, welcome to Good in Theory. Uh, you are a professor at Ryerson University, uh, author of a book called Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions, and prior to that, a political speechwriter. Uh, am I right? Yep, that's that's correct. And thanks for having me on, by the way. Oh, very. Uh, you're very very welcome. Um, we're glad to we're glad to have you. So, tell me a little bit about. Tell me about uh, this. I read a lot of academic stuff on, you know, rhetoric, but tell me about your practical background, about uh, the speech writing part of it. Yeah, well, I was a speech writer on uh, Capitol Hill uh, for about five years. I worked on the uh, House side and the Senate side. Uh, I worked for Chris Dodd in the Senate and uh, Cindy Hoyer, who's uh, Nancy Pelosi's number two, back then, I guess, still is uh, in the House. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a pretty steady basis. You, you'd write one speech or statement or press statement or floor statement or speech for an outside group, you know, just maybe you know, a couple per, per day. So you, you're churning out a really large quantity uh, of, of words, uh, you know, on a kind of select number of themes because they each have their sort of pet issues every day. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I was there in the late uh, Bush years and the early Obama years. Um, I think probably the highlight uh, of being there in that period uh, was being there during the uh, debate over the Affordable Care Act um, and uh, getting actually to be on the House floor when the Affordable Care Act passed. That, that, was, a, that was a neat thing. Um, I, I'm glad that uh, yes. I'm glad to you know, in a teeny tiny way to have been part of that. Um, so after about five years of that, I, I realized I was, I was going to uh, grad school part-time. I was taking a part-time uh, master's course in philosophy and public policy at uh, GW University in, in DC, um, which sort of made me realize how what I really wanted to do was be an academic uh, and that I really missed that world and kind of, uh, I, I remembered a lot of that, um, taking some part-time courses and I decided to, to make a change um, and uh, uh, get back into academia. Um, uh, so I went for my uh, PhD uh, at Columbia, and I studied political science and political theory. Um, and as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to make the focus of my research uh, and, and what I wanted to work on, um, I realized that there was a real opportunity here to connect what I had done in, in my past professional life uh, to what I wanted to do as an academic, trying to figure out uh, what was, my thing was going to be. Um, I, you know, partly because I, I, I didn't want the time I spent doing rhetoric from the practical side to go to waste. I, I thought it could inform what I had to say about rhetoric and political theory in, in some unique ways that not a lot of people working in that area uh, might have had the opportunity to do. Um, th there aren't a lot of opportunities to write um, in theory about something you, you, you've seen a little bit more up close in practice. So I, I like to think that what I'm doing um, when I think about rhetoric and political theory is at least a little bit informed by the time I spent uh, in US politics and that I can write um, about rhetoric and political theory with, with a little bit of the authority that comes uh, from having done it, which I think mainly just means in practice that uh, I try to be my own BS test. I try to think if right. uh, what I'm talking about, about the theory of rhetoric uh, and about uh, the development of rhetoric um, over the you know, long course of Western political thought, um, if it really makes sense uh, to someone who's engaged in 
day-to-day practices of, of political persuasion, whether it's uh, social media or speech writing or speech making or community organizing or whatever it is. I, I try to apply that test to the extent that I can, which I hope makes what I have to write um, more relevant to people in that world. Although I guess that remains to be seen, but at least that, that was what I was thinking when I tried to make that connection between what I had done as a professional and what I'm now trying to do as an academic. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's great because not that many theorists have practical experience of, uh, of any kind, much less of the, of the thing they're theorizing, right? I mean, I did, my, my dissertation was about honor and dueling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I, I do not think that I lack dignity more than a regular human being. Right. I haven't fought any duels. Um, but you, there's, there's still a chance. Uh, you still seem like a young guy. You never know, right? <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you, you can issue the challenges, yeah. but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you'd, I, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I think you need a glove. I wish I had a glove around here, but... Uh, mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're great for throwing on the ground. Yeah, you know? right? Yeah. <laughs> Your book, Words on Fire, Eloquence in Its Conditions, is about rhetoric. And I just want to start by specifying what you mean, because the word rhetoric uh, could be used in a lot of contexts. You're talking about political rhetoric. And... Even political rhetoric, it could be in newspapers, in op-eds, in memes, on social media. It can be almost anywhere. But you're mainly concerned with the kind of paradigm type of political rhetoric. So you talk about Cicero a lot in the book. You can picture Cicero at the rostrum addressing the Roman people, trying to rile them up to do something. Uh, And... If they like what he's saying, they'll cheer him and acclaim him. And if they don't, maybe they'll you know, heckle him, throw cabbage. Maybe they'll assault him after. Bad things could happen. Now, traditionally, rhetoric of this kind, this kind of persuasive political speech, has been really important in politics and an important part of the gentleman's education. But in philosophy and in common thought, rhetoric's been suspicious. Right, because if these speakers they're stirring up everyone's emotions, they're trying to get them to do something, why isn't it just manipulation? Shouldn't they be addressing the people's reason? So you don't think that rhetoric is bad this way. So tell me, um, why isn't rhetoric just manipulation? Why do you think it can play a positive role? Yeah, so I, th- I think first of all, you're absolutely right that the kind of manipulative or, or, you know, emotionally manipulative speech you're talking about definitely exists. You know, it absolutely is a thing out there in the world. Um, And one of the things I'm concerned with in the book is trying to figure out uh, why it happens and what we can do about it. Um, But I will say that I tend to think of of rhetoric um, on the whole as a good thing. And I guess the reason I do is because there, there isn't really any other means of making large-scale collective decisions. You know, I think about rhetoric as a way of, of collective decision-making, as a way of trying to figure out what we in a given group uh, are going to do. It, it has to do with, with, with judgment. It has to do with, with thinking together in public. Um, and of course, there are bad ways of doing it. And of course, there are bad ways of thinking together in public, just as there are kind of um, dumb or fallacious ways of thinking as an individual. Um, so I don't think that the existence of those means that the whole thing is kind of a doomed enterprise. But I do think that there are resources in the history of thinking about rhetoric that help us to um, uh, help us to try to have more of the good and less of the bad. You know, one thing that I really take from uh, from Brian Garston, who, who wrote a really influential book on rhetoric that, that I draw from, that really influenced me, called Saving Persuasion, um, is that 
when we're using rhetoric, we're, we're trying to persuade people by starting with what they think and what they believe and trying to get them where we want them to go, um, trying to connect the belief that we're trying to inculcate uh, with where they already are. But, it, but if you're taking that step, you're already showing a lot of regard for them as your fellow citizens, um, as, as potentially political equals, as, as people that you take seriously, because you have to take people's starting points and their beliefs and their values and their emotions seriously if you really want to have a hope of persuading them. So even though that there are plenty of forms of, of manipulative and anti-democratic rhetoric, I think the whole premise that you can use words uh, to move people um, starts from a basic regard for um, you know, for the people you're dealing with. You, you can't even hope to succeed at rhetoric unless you have some kind of basic concern and care for you know, the people in front of you. Of course, that can be distorted and manipulated in all sorts of ways, but, but that's, I start from that basic concern and care. Great. I want to follow that up a little bit because... I get the argument that in order to persuade people, you have to have some concern for what they care about and what will move them, and that's fine. And so even in order to make an appealing speech and a persuasive speech, you have to appeal to these things that they already care about. But my question is, if you care so much about the audience, then why don't you just tell them the facts and let them decide? Because the practice of rhetoric isn't just that, right? Uh, you talk about stylistic abundance. And I would say that if you give Cicero as an example, his speech is really extra. He's always adding in flamboyant examples and fancy language. Uh, and it's not just that, but as you know from Aristotle, persuasive speech isn't just about the argument. It's also about showing that you're a persuasive, trustworthy speaker. That's ethos. It's about the character of the speaker. And so... In today's rhetoric, when people say, you know, as a person of color or uh, as uh, someone with working class roots, politicians are saying this all the time. They're establishing their character, that they're a trustworthy person. And that doesn't always have to do with the facts of the case. Um, and Aristotle is also saying that you have to appeal to the emotions. His guide to rhetoric is uh, in large part about how to appeal to people's emotions. So the question is, if you care about your audience and you want them to have good decisions, why are you using all these persuasive techniques that go beyond just giving them a straight up argument, facts, reason that would allow them to make the best decision for themselves? Yeah, well, I, th I think part of the reason is the things that kind of that go into that quality of, of extra, you know, like, for instance, uh, emotions or, you know, or, or ethos, the character of the speaker, how you show who you are in the way that you talk. Um, I think Aristotle was right to say that these things aren't totally irrelevant, even if they're not part of part of a, an argument per se, because uh, they, they they tell us what we value about the world. They tell us um, uh, they, they orient us to what's important. Um, they orient us to whether we can trust this person speaking in front of us. And all these things are kind of beyond the level of the the logical argument, but they still affect how we happen to judge as individuals. So I, I think part of the answer is sort of a, a realist answer is that like, look, this is just how we judge. We, we're emotional creatures. We have these emotions. We have these, um, this, this wanting to evaluate people on the basis of their trustworthiness. You, you, you can, um, you, you essentially can't get around it because that's how we, we are. But, you know, even beyond that, um, I, I think that there are, um, uh, one, that, that, that our emotions and our evaluations of character kind of show what we value and what's important to us. And I also think that, that this 
you know, the, the stuff that goes in the category of stylistic abundance, the, the extra, the, the stuff in which orators actually kind of attempt uh, to be eloquent, um, says a lot about how they're accommodating to that audience, because every audience they talk to is going to have a different idea of what sort of language is appropriate, uh, what sorts of figures of speech move them and don't move them, um, what counts as just the facts. I don't think there's this sort of like pre-political, pre-rhetorical, just the facts that they're lying there you can pick up. I think mm -hmm. you have to figure out what counts as that in any kind of given encounter with an audience. So I think that the number one reason that I think this stuff has been valued in the history of rhetoric and, and why I continue to value it is because a lot of it has to do with, with this value of a speaker uh, accommodating an audience, a speaker uh, learning about the people in front of him or her and demonstrating uh, regard for them in the process of trying to win them over. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's part of what makes rhetoric complicated and that's part of what creates this sort of stylistic abundance. But I don't think it's just there for show or just there to make people sound pretty. I, I think it's there because it really comes out in the process of a speaker learning about what moves the audience and, and trying to reach an audience um, uh, on the level of, of, of emotion and style and language and character, which, which matter whether we want them to matter or not. So no matter what we're doing rhetoric, there is no, there is no, there is no outside of rhetoric. So we might as well do it. Well, I, I think that's fair to say. I, I think that, um, you know, like I said earlier, I think there are kinds of forms of communication that aren't rhetorical. Um, you know, I think mm -hmm. a conversation isn't like rhetoric for some interesting reasons. I think, you know, geometry, um, uh, you know, logic, certain kinds of coming to arguments and, 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 and demonstrating proofs aren't rhetoric uh, in some interesting ways. But I think in general, when we're deliberating together about politics, we, we are doing rhetoric. And that means that mm -hmm. our, our emotions that, that tell us what we value, whether it's our, our, our family or our uh, home or, or our um, higher yeah, ethical values. Yeah, the yeah. big ones, right? <laughs> those, are, those are in there. And um, of course, there are manipulative ways to appeal to those, but there are also you know, non-manipulative ways. And I think that just um, given that those appeals are going to exist in rhetorical speech, that that's why it's kind of worth learning about how to do it well. And by well, I mean both kind of stylistically well and hopefully ethically well. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I sometimes get sick of hearing of hardworking Canadian families. But. <laughs> but we're all working. We're all working so hard, right? Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I know. I, but yeah, I, 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 I hear you. Oh, that's another one. If you say I hear you or I get it, that that's a Powell politician uh, demonstrates their their um, uh, sympathy. I for hear the, you for the working I see man. You. See you. Yeah. That's... Message. I care. Right. Exactly. Uh, so in the book, you talk about times when rhetoric goes well. It can, it can realize these kind of egalitarian political goals, hopefully, so it's effective. It can be ethical. And you talk about this in terms of, of uh, an interesting concept that you have called a rhetorical bargain. So could you explain what the rhetorical bargain is and uh, give us an example of rhetoric doing what it's supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. So, I, so first, I think to explain this idea of a rhetorical bargain, I think it's basically the idea that, as I described it, especially coming out of the classical world, rhetoric is this this asymmetrical situation. Um, the few speak, the many listen, um, and from any kind of perspective, interested in some kind of basic political equality, that that's not ideal. That's not great. Um, right. You want to think of ways of potentially flattening that divide. You want to think of ways of potentially bringing some equity to an inequitable situation. Um, and then the thing that I think emerges from people thinking about rhetoric um, uh, under conditions of inequality, um, people like Cicero who are not 
uh, Democrats and not egalitarians, but still have some reasons to want the situation to be a little flatter is this idea of a rhetorical bargain, this idea of risk on both sides of the equation, uh, different kinds of risk that are appropriate to different places in the rhetorical situation. Um, so I think for the audience, listening to something that might change your mind, exposing yourself to the possibility uh, that you've been wrong um, and you're going to renounce your past views on the basis of something you've heard, uh, that's risky and it's potentially dangerous. It can upset your notion of who you are and what you value. Um, for the speaker, I think there's a different kind of risk. It's this risk of uh, being publicly rejected, of being humiliated, of losing face. You know, for someone like mm -hmm. Cicero, and this might connect with a little bit about um, what you've studied and, and thought about on, on the idea of honor. For someone in a, situ in a society that highly values um, ideas of honor or, or virtus, which is connected to the ideal of manliness, um, losing face publicly uh, is a big, big deal. Um, and this is something an orator takes on and risks, or at least ought to risk, um, every time he or she speaks up in public. Um, mm -hmm. That's, I think, how the bargain ought to work. So one of the examples I think about in the book um, of this bargain going well, and it's, of course, it's sort of the um, classic speech that everyone looks to in the ancient world is, is Demosthenes' speech uh, on the crown, um, in which he's uh, justifying uh, this policy um, of resisting um, what he sees is the, the tyranny coming from Philip of Macedon and threatening to submerge Athens for all these years. Even though the policy has failed, he's still trying to defend it and sort of making this sort of heroic uh, rhetorical last stand. Um, and, and there's this uh, moment um, uh, that's called the Oath on the Heroes of Marathon that, that, that gets quoted in all these ancient rhetoric uh, treatises and textbooks in, in, the, uh, in the treatise on the sublime, sort of the famous moment in this um, in which he swears by all the dead Athenian heroes of the past um, um, that you, the current people of Athens, uh, haven't done anything wrong and, and that you've done the right thing, even though your policy has failed, that you, you did what was right, uh, despite your failure. Um, and so the reason this is interesting to me is one, uh, it's obviously a tremendously, uh, risky move for him, um, because he is invoking sort of the, the highest civic ideals, the sort of ultimate symbolism of the golden age of this democracy that is now passed and gone. Uh, invoking it to defend his own failed policy. Uh, you know, there's a possibility that this thing could have gone very badly, that he could have been booed off the stage, which, which oftentimes people are when they attempt something um, that is trying to venture into this territory of the, of the sublime, of the kind of over the top and the excessive. Um, there's also, though, I, I think it's a great example of the connection between rhetorical form and content. So this idea uh, of the... Um, the form that he's using, the figure of speech that comes into play there is, is the idea of an apostrophe, which, which in uh, rhetorical theory means you're swearing by or invoking someone that, that's not present. It's, it's often kind of considered, in ancient times, it was considered sort of the, the, the height of the sublime because you're calling on the gods or calling on the heroic dead uh, to witness what's going on. Um, so one, it's kind of a, a form that embodies this idea of sublimity. But two, um, it's, it's directly connected to the idea that he thinks that the, the, the past um, Athenian heroes were worth swearing by, and this is an appropriate occasion to invoke them. So if you were to just say without, you know, as um, the, the person who wrote the treatise on the sublime imagine, what if you had taken that part out? And what if you had just said kind of flatly, um, not I swear by them that you did the right thing, but uh, they did the right thing and so did you. If you said it in a kind of more mm -hmm. just the facts way. Um, his interesting observation on this is, that, well, it really wouldn't be just the facts anymore because the implication would be that he really didn't mean it. 
if if you said something that was that kind of um, that risky and that dangerous and that kind of um, striving for sublimity in matter of fact terms, it would kind of indicate that you didn't really believe what you were saying. It would indicate that um, uh, your your heart wasn't in it, and it was sort of a kind of transparent ploy. So there's a sort of connection, I think, between um, the necessary form and the necessary content. It's a kind of example of how um, form isn't this sort of extraneous thing that kind of sits on top of the meaning of our words. It's a way of expressing what we mean and how we mean it. Um, and I think the reason this gets singled out by, by lots of ancient writers who think about eloquence is it's just sort of this you know, paradigm example of how you use the form of your words, not just to elicit an emotional response and get goosebumps, um, but how to convey a you know, kind of set of complicated ideas that almost can't be expressed straightforwardly because to express them straightforwardly would be to kind of miss out on the idea that you're trying to advance. Right. Okay, great. So there are important things that just matter of fact, plain language cannot express. I, I think that's, you have yeah. To use a, yeah. You have to use rhetorical forms in order to get it, get the job done. I think that's fair to say, because I think there's, you know, the, the meaning of things isn't just kind of the straightforward semantic meaning. It's the, the kind of what it means for you and what it means for us in this situation. Uh, and there, there are some things that um, that you don't really mean unless you say them with the form that kind of uh, matches the content. You, you could just think of, you know, you, you could um, tell a loved one that you love them, but if you're not making eye contact uh, and you're saying it in a kind of sort of flat monotone way and you're, you're, you're looking away and you don't actually mean it, um, it's not just the semantic content of the words. It's, it's the way in which you express them that is part uh, of the message that gets sent. And of course, you know, I think rhetoric is all about finding much more complex ways than that, that, that form and content back each other up. Okay. And so in, in that example, could you give us a, an explanation of it in terms of the rhetorical bargain that we were talking about that makes uh, rhetoric a resource for egalitarian politics? Yeah. So I think, you know, part of the reason I, I look to, to the Roman situation for the, the um, rhetorical bargain is that I think it speaks a lot more to us is that it's kind of an oligarchic republic rather than a direct democracy. But, you know, in the Demosthenes situation, um, you're, you're, you're theoretically in a direct democracy in which kind of any Athenian male can get up and speak. In practice, though, it's kind of a limited number of people who have the ability, the training, you know, the, the leisure, the, the recognition to get up and address the assembly. So despite the fact that you've got formal equality, you've still got some kind of informal inequality of who can speak. So, so the idea that Demosthenes is a trained, effective elite speaker from a wealthy family with, with rhetorical training means that he's kind of one of a few people uh, relative few people who can regularly address the assembly. So that's part of the asymmetry that's based into it. It's not just the idea that he is speaking and you know maybe 10,000 or 5,000 or however many people are listening. Um, it's that he's one of a small number of people who could potentially speak. So you've got the situation of asymmetry baked into it. So how do you, how do you bridge that a little bit? I, I think part of the way you bridge it is by saying that I, the person who am claiming the privilege to speak to you, I'm going to put some skin in the game. I'm going to accept a comparatively higher risk. Um, so in his case, um, it's it's the the risk of any particular kind of rhetorical gesture. And, you know, like I said, you know, swearing on the dead heroes to kind of endorse your policy is is such a risky move that if enough people didn't buy it, and you know, of course, these things can kind of there can be tipping points. If you know, fifty percent plus one don't buy it. Um, you, you could conceivably be laughed out, shouted down, heckled. That this happens all the time in, in the Athenian context. People are always um, shouting down heckling speakers. Uh, you know, he's giving this speech uh, in a trial. Um, so if he loses, um, there are potentially legal consequences, you know, up to and including, I'm, I'm not sure what the stakes for him were in this particular case, but 
up to and including um, exile, uh, heavy fines, uh, worse. So you, you know, in many ways, you're kind of pleading for your life. So these heavy penalties apply to the elite that don't apply to the average uh, Joe or, or Demetrius or whoever it is in the audience. Um, so what was the audience putting on this stake? I think they're putting at stake the smaller but still important risk of uh, of listening, uh, of reevaluating uh, what they had thought in terms of um, uh, in terms of what they're hearing. You know, in this case, Demosthenes is kind of arguing from a position of weakness because uh, he had been associated with this, this exceptionally uh, aggressive um, interventionist anti-Macedon policy uh, that, that seems to be crumbling, uh, that seems to lead to Athens losing its political independence. Um, he, he's in trouble. Um, and if you're an average member of the assembly that believes this, and you are still opening yourself up to the possibility that maybe you got it wrong and it might be otherwise, and you're willing to be persuaded. I think of that as a risk too, because it's it's a kind of risk to your uh, integrity as a as a political person. It's a risk to your um, uh, to the story you tell yourself about who you are and what you value in politics. It, it's not the kind of risk of getting exiled, but I think it's appropriate to put the bigger risk on the positions of bigger privilege, which is kind of what this rhetorical bargain does, you know, for me. Great example. Um, and I, I like the example you brought up about, you know, telling the different ways you can tell someone that you love them uh, that might be mean different things, right? And, and this, that same example would illustrate here the, you know, vulnerability of the speaker, because if you tell someone you love them and they throw cabbage at you and heckle you out of the assembly, well, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's not going to go well. There is a, a vulnerability there. Right. Can you give me an example of uh, modern good rhetoric of eloquence? So people might talk about Martin Luther King or JFK or even Obama. Uh, give me an example in living memory of modern day eloquence. Yeah, well, I, I, I was thinking about this. Um, and actually, I mean, if you want to yeah. tell me about one of your speeches, <laughs> go ahead. Go right ahead. <laughs> no, mine, mine are, I think mine are pretty forgettable. Um, um, but I, you know, there is an example that I didn't find a way to work it into the book, but it really kind of struck me as, as illustrating this kind of riskiness and how it plays out. Um, uh, was the example of Emma Gonzalez in the uh, the March for Our Lives, one of the um, um, protests against gun violence that came out of the the uh, Parkland shooting in Florida. Um, and I, I thought about this quite a bit as a modern example because I don't really look to um, most mainstream politics as demonstrating eloquence in the way I think of it, you know, for some of the reasons I talk about in the book, I think there are a lot of reasons that um, you you don't see eloquence for the most part in the political mainstream because there isn't much of an incentive or reason to pursue it, and there isn't much of a culture around it. Um, so there, there's a lot of culture of risk avoidance or a culture of, of demagogic speech that has its own problems. So, you know, I really think that for the most part, if you're going to look to speech in the tradition of eloquence, you need to look kind of outside the, the mainstream on the margins um, uh, at the at, at, uh, um, at protests or from um, civil society groups. So I think of Emma Gonzalez um, at the March for Our Lives um, uh, gets up to speak uh, and partway through her uh, speech at this uh, rally uh, goes completely silent um, uh, and remains silent for um, a number of minutes uh, until people are kind of uncomfortably shuffling around, uh, wondering if she's lost her nerve, wondering if she's having a panic attack, uh, wondering if she has a huge case of stage fright or something like that. Um, until finally, uh, at the end of this time period, she reveals that she has been um, silent for the precise amount of time um, that the uh, shooter in the Parkland shooting uh, had, had carried out the, uh, the the mass shooting there. Um, so this is mm. this is really 
fascinating and interesting to me and moving to me in, in so many different ways. So one is this kind of connection between form and content. You know, we're, we're, we're totally desensitized at this point uh, by the idea of a mass shooting, at least I think we are. And I think Emma Gonzalez recognized that too. So what is another way to bring this home? What, what is a way to kind of bring to a mass audience some kind of the um, uh, discomfort and wrongness and, and sense of fear that you might've gotten from living through a mass shooting? And, and part of that is figuring out a way to put that into oratory, to put that into words, because you know it's almost kind of conveying the sense that we are out of words to convey you know, the horror of this because this has been reported to death and spoken about to death. Um, but there are some things that can only be represented by silence because they're that terrible. Uh, that's part of it. Um, and the other thing that's interesting to me is this connection between um, you know risk and eloquence that I mentioned, that, that this is sort of a, especially for someone like her that doesn't really have much of a public profile, uh, that isn't well at that point, you know, kind of known as a speaker that is just, you know, a high school kid, um, is to take the risk uh, of of kind of breaking the form in a sense, kind of, of taking the risk of not doing what she is expected to do, um, and, and risking that people will will take it seriously that she's been kind of struck by stage fright uh, or that she's been uh, you know paralyzed by the ability to say anything about this, but but really have it be a kind of a really deliberate, controlled gesture. And to be able to, you know, I can only imagine being in that situation and coming up with this idea of how you want to represent um, uh, this kind of empty, silent space at, at the center of this experience, um, and then and then going through with it and looking as you're kind of watch. You're, you know, presumably she's kind of looking at a phone or a watch, just kind of counting down the time, um, and going through with it for one minute and two minute and three minutes, um, and holding on in this incredibly uh, uncomfortable situation. Uh, until she reaches the point at which she had, uh -huh. had exactly kind of mimicked the time period in which this life-changing event happened. Um, she's a student. And she's a student. She's not a, a No, 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 no. That's right. She was someone who was a survivor of the yeah. shooting. And to, to kind of mm – -hmm. um, that's the sort of – I can only imagine not just the experience of speaking in front of a crowd, but doing something kind of that unusual in front of a crowd, but that meaningful in front of a crowd oh, is yeah. part of the kind of this um, existential quality of – uncertainty, discomfort, that, that, that a good speaker ought to speak in the course of doing something scary uh, and eloquent. Eloquence ought to be scary to the speaker and the audience. Uh, th th this quote that I, I made a chapter title, but I keep coming back to it when I think about um, Cicero's uh, mentor uh, explaining in his dialogue that whenever he gets up to speak, he trembles in his heart uh, and in every limb. Um, this idea that, that eloquence and trembling go together because you're really attempting something that is unusual and, and new and unique and frightening. Um, and I think that Public speech, for the most part, is who kind of stereotyped um, and stylized these days, that there isn't a lot of opportunity for that. And this is one of the rare opportunities where I actually saw those qualities and can only imagine how it must have felt to kind of produce them in, in, in real time. So I wish I put that in the book, but I didn't find a good way to kind of connect that to the broader themes. But that's, that's what I had in my mind as I was thinking about where, where do you find that these days? Um, that was an example that stood out to me. Great. That's really, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I think that I mean, I'll get on to that, but uh, I've I've heard speeches at you know live political events I found quite moving, um, and that's typically not what I find when I'm seeing watching television and seeing a a high level right. politician speak, uh, which which I'd like to you know turn to now because we've talked about examples of eloquence of rhetoric going well and. There 
are a lot of complaints about contemporary political rhetoric, especially when you look more directly at how politicians are speaking and a little bit more about the broader discourse. But I think that contemporary political rhetoric is awful. I can't stand to watch politicians speak a lot of the time. And I'd like to just make some complaints about it. And you can tell me why you <laughs> think it's that way. Um, so one way that political rhetoric goes wrong these days, and I don't think I'm alone thinking this, is that it is incredibly mm -hmm. boring. It's bland. Uh, to take a local example from Canada, I cannot... Uh, I cannot watch Justin Trudeau. When he speaks, there are no thoughts that appear in my brain. Um, I, I get a bit frustrated because he doesn't answer questions, but it seems like so many platitudes mm -hmm. that I can't really, there's no edges that I can get a grip on, on what people are saying. And one of the examples of the same kind of thing you talk about in your book, I think, is uh, Hillary Clinton talking about America is great and we're great because we're good and we're good because everyone knows it and we're going to value all our diversity and yada, yada, yada. And it's just kind of a word salad that means nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's bland. Let's start with that. Why are politicians who, you know, if, if we have any education in ancient Greece, we think they should be standing up, setting the rostrum on fire. Their job is at least part public speaking, and yet they're, they're reading total platitudes from a sheet as though it's, they're the first speech they made of their life. Made of their life. So mm -hmm. what's, what's going on with that? Yeah, what is going on with that? I was thinking about the Justin Trudeau example. I've, I've, you know, since moving here, um, I've, I've been exposed to my fair share of Justin Trudeau rhetoric. I think the only kind of, I was thinking like, what's the most memorable Justin Trudeau quote of the entire kind of uh, a prime ministership? And I think it must be when he said it's 2015 um, uh, to talk about the, the gender balanced cabinet, which, which is great, but also like you, the prime minister's most meaningful statement was just kind of stating what year it was, which is just like remarkable. It has been that many years. <laughs> and that's the, that's the only Justin Trudeau quote I can remember. Um, but yeah, so I, I I support you on that, and I, I guess so. What what is it? I think I think there are a lot of reasons, um, but I think part of it, I think, kind of the heart of this is that there's a lot more to lose than there is to gain uh, with kind of you know any, any extremes of eloquence or any kind of quality of extraordinary speech. Um, and you know, part of that is that, that, that the way that politics has changed that in any kind of um, um, legislative debate, for instance. Um, politicians don't go to the floor of, of parliament or of Congress to change minds um, because their responsibility uh, is to their party uh, and maybe to their constituents and their voters. Um, but they don't go in with the kind of mandate um, where they are willing and able to respond to persuasion. And of course, if people aren't going to respond to persuasion, um, then you won't try to persuade them. I, I think that's part of the reason why there isn't a lot of eloquence uh, in legislative bodies. But I think in general, um, and I think the reason there isn't a lot of political eloquence from politicians more broadly is because, you know, like I said, um, if eloquence is closely tied to risk, um, there's very little reward that justifies uh, those kinds of risks. I, you know, I don't think, for instance, you know, Hillary Clinton um, lost because she was a risk averse uh, speaker. You know, Justin Trudeau has been pretty politically successful as an extraordinarily risk averse speaker. Um, and I think that in addition to the kind of changing risk reward calculus, now there, there are so many more tools um, than there ever have been in the past uh, for politicians to pursue this kind of uh, the quality of, of what I 
uh, borrow a term in the book to call algorithmic rhetoric, rhetoric that kind of responds to quantifications of what they expect the public is going to accept. And I think part of the reason it doesn't strike people as especially new or risky is because to the extent possible, it's calculated to be a speech that they're already going to kind of nod along and agree with. It's not really going to challenge people because you've already done the work of figuring out what people want to hear. Um, right. Yeah. So I think, I think part of it is, is technical change. Part of it is institutional change. Um, but I think part of it is, and I, I struggle to kind of come up with a better way of expressing this, but when um, rhetoric is first developed as a discipline, it's a discipline both of speech and discipline of, of character formation, of training. The idea that someone would want to pursue a certain kind of way of speaking to demonstrate their, um, their, their virtus or their virtue in the public sphere, public sphere, um, you know, is ultimately, I think, kind of a character-driven um, pursuit. And I think it's kind of, it's difficult. I don't like people kind of hand-waving at kind of a virtue or character of ways of getting politicians to do what we want them to do because it's really hard, hard to institutionalize that. It's really hard to think about that in, in systemic terms. But I guess what I come down to is, is that um, our political culture doesn't really value uh, eloquence uh, and oratory and, and the orator as a, as a distinctive and kind of unique public figure. Um, and so we don't get that because there's no value um, to public figures trying to pursue and fill and act out uh, that kind of role. It's not as if they've lost the ability to pursue this kind of speech. It's just that they have no kind of motivation, either internal or external, to want to pursue it. I really like that idea of algorithmic rhetoric. Political rhetoric, rhetoric is getting routinized. Um, politicians use all these techniques. They, they do polls, uh, they do focus groups and all their messaging. Mm -hmm. And by the time the politician gets up to speak, they're just feeding back what they know the public wants to hear. They've flattened everything out. Mm -hmm. um, but that still doesn't quite give the answer for why it has to be boring, right? Why is the main incentive to not mess up <laughs> or, or to lose anyone rather than to inspire some people? Mm-hmm. I mean, people yeah. do the same thing with Hollywood movies, right? And they're sometimes able to make right. stuff that people care about or can at least sit through for right. many yeah. hours rather than a few minutes. Right. So why yeah, why is the incentive to to um, not mess up? I think just because the costs of messing up uh, in any one case can be tremendous. They can be, you know, I, I think that this is something that Cicero thinks about, that they could be uh, career-ending. Uh, um, you know, in his case, it could be, you know, they could lead to um, uh, actual physical harm. Um, uh -huh. uh, not all politicians face that these days, but they certainly do kind of take their careers in their hand when they speak. So I think in any given circumstance, the, the, the benefit of doing something inspiring just seems to be so much smaller than the risk of saying the wrong thing and ending a career. I, I don't like to invoke cancel culture because that's just kind of totally stripped of meaning. But I, I, you have a lot of, I think it kind of speaks to the, the sense, at least among kind of political and cultural elites, that if they say the wrong thing, the consequences are um, uh, are so much worse than the benefit of them saying the right thing. And this kind of results in kind of less risky speech. I think the flip side of that is that um, in the kind of paradigmatic ancient cases I talk about, you still have speakers facing tremendous consequences. You know, Cicero wouldn't, right. wouldn't worry about getting canceled. He would have worried about getting, you know, physically, uh, physically attacked. And ultimately <laughs> he was assassinated for his, for his political words, right? So it's not as if risks didn't exist then. It's that there was something impelling political figures, I think, 
to go towards those risks. There was something in kind of impelling them to take on risks as a demonstration of who they were and what their character was. It doesn't mean they're kind of better and more virtuous leaders than the ones we have now. It just meant that there was some kind of um, social or cultural or political pressure they faced to do riskier things that came at higher costs of failure. And I think part of that came from uh, the outside. It came from sort of populist uh, bottom-up pressure from people who were competing in the same political speech uh, space. Um, part of it came from um, th this sort of uh, difficult and to a Roman, it would have been sort of an counterintuitive claim that you can demonstrate virtus, um, this quality of manliness by the way that you speak. Uh, well, how is that? Well, it's by taking on tremendous kind of burdens and risks in the way that you speak that are kind of analogous in the Roman mind to, you know, the really manly things like like going off to war. Um, right. You know, I think so yeah. saying saying things that everyone, you know, everyone will accept is just yeah. boring and not manly or virtuous. Right. Whereas right. going out there and really putting it on the line with like a uh, a bold point of view is is actually an accomplishment that we might admire. I, I think so. And I think part of the reason that 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 eloquence changes, and I talk about this a little bit at the conclusion of the book, is that most of the eloquence that we that is kind of forms the kind of Western rhetorical tradition comes out of this really kind of circumscribed world of a bunch of elite males doing status competition. Uh, it comes in, it comes from a very kind of um, circumscribed, limited world in which you can win elite uh, virtus credentials, whether you're in the 18th century British Parliament or in the the uh, first century BC Roman Forum. Um, by taking on rhetorical risks and by putting it on the line. So, you know, naturally, you know, our culture uh, doesn't and should not think of public speech in the same way. There, there's a lot more at stake than which particular elite male gets gets kind of manliness points. Um, right. <laughs> but I, I think that the side effect of, of losing that culture, the side effect of losing the impetus to um, push elites to take risk in their speech is a much more cautious and risk averse kind of way of speaking. So you know, I, I think in the way I kind of leave it in the book, and maybe this is the next book, I, I don't know, I don't have a good answer to this right now. But where I leave it is, um, it's important for us as a political culture to come up with ways of pushing elites towards political risk and towards risky, difficult, dangerous speech, uh, for the reasons I talk about these things being valuable, um, you know, without trying to recreate this rightfully um, and thankfully vanished culture of elite male status competition. How, how do you get the benefits of that kind of culture with the, without the kind of uh, baggage that it came with? And, you know, this is, well, oh yeah. I'll, I like, I like, uh, I like rivalry and macho posturing as much as the next guy. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I don't like, the more you talk about it, I'm not sure that's something I, uh, I want to organize politics around. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so it may be that if really what this is, is about not, not about kind of evening hierarchical divides and really getting a sense of what the people need and then holding leaders and speakers accountable by making them undergo risk. If it's really just riskiness for the sake of showing off, mm -hmm. then I'm not so sure I'm uh, persuaded that eloquence and rhetoric is a great idea and can serve uh, democracy that, that well anymore. Yeah. And, and go on. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm really, I, I've thought about that too. And I think that's sort of, that's something I've struggled with. I guess where I come down is that I try to distinguish between um, for, you mentioned like for the sake of and the side effects of. Um, 
And I uh, guess when I think about, you know, I, I come back to Cicero because I think he developed a lot of these ideas or, or, or at least wrote them down. Um, I think he pursues a certain kind of idea of eloquence for the sake of, of winning kind of macho points of kind of demonstrating his virtues. The side effect of this, I think, is that he flattens the rhetorical situation and, and celebrates the ability of the crowd to push back and take a vocal role in rhetoric, not, not because he's a Democrat, not because he sympathizes with them, not because he wants a flatter politics, but because he sort of has to in order to have kind of a worthy adversary in you know, against which to demonstrate his virtues. So, you know, you kind of, what, what I like is the side effect. I think this is the sort of thing where the pursuit of a bad thing leads to a good side effect. And I'm trying to, you know, I try to leave it in the book is, well, how can uh -huh. we, how can we kind of pursue this thing that flattens situations of, of public speech and public persuasion without the same kind of motivation that, that, that no longer exists and really shouldn't exist. Uh -huh. um, and that, wow. that's still, that's still a puzzle to me, but I don't want to write off the side effects and the results of this just because the motivations that get us there are things that, that I personally, um, and you presumably too, don't really like. Oh uh, well, look, I'm I'm an I'm an honor guy, yeah, right. so showing off is fine with right. me, right? Recognition is a totally legitimate motivation, um, especially when when others might not be available. Right. But um, one other reason uh, that I want to float why the fact that rhetoric, political rhetoric, right now is so boring might actually be a good thing is is this uh, a lot of the best speeches seem to come out of very dramatic, chaotic, risky situations, mm -hmm. right? So you think of Winston Churchill, fight them on the beaches mm -hmm. speech, something like that, or um, Demosthenes speech. These are crisis situations where like there's a lot going wrong. Maybe the reason political rhetoric is so boring is because Politics is going pretty well. Uh, there's no giant disruptions or risk. It's stable. All the things that we ought to be mad about are not necessarily the crises, but just the slow, ongoing um, structural evils of our of our political of our political situation. So, so maybe boring speech just means boring life, and boring life is overall better like may may we live in boring times right right, right. and that's totally uh you know that that's that, that critique um has been around for a long time that that's what uh, tacitus released one of one of the characters that he wrote in the voice of said is that um um you know he says rhetoric i think the, the famous quote is that uh, that great oratory is like fire um it uh, feeds on things it's burning um the the more that is burning the, right. the brighter the brighter the flame is so when your house is on fire um that, that provokes eloquence about it. I was thinking about um, when you talk about the kind of grinding structural problems we can't solve. I just watched uh, Don't Look Up on Netflix a few days ago, and I think a lot of people did. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking a lot of people have kind of critiqued this by saying it's supposed to be this global warming allege, uh, uh, allegory. Um, and yet global warming, uh, climate change, isn't like a, a comet striking the earth at all. It's not this kind of like deadline thing uh -huh. where the clock is ticking down. It's this kind of boring structural systemic thing that um, is not going to change noticeably in anyone's lifetime, which is what makes it so devilishly hard to deal with. So yeah, that, that is like, how do you, um, maybe problems like that and times like this, uh, even like the pandemic don't produce great oratory. Um, so I, 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 I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but I also think 
Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is Edmund Burke's response to this, is, is his critique of this position um, that, that struck me as having a lot of uh, plausibility, which was that sometimes the relationship can go the other way around because language itself is powerful. Sometimes the right kind of language can, can wake us up in a situation in which we've kind of been numbed um, or kind of lulled to sleep by the non-dramatic nature of our problems. And that sometimes language that, that is, um, has this quality of, of sublimity, um, which is you know this kind of quality of um, uh, striking fear into people or over the topness and, and not kind of fear of, um, you know, not, not kind of fear of personal danger, but you know, awesome in the sense that kind of awesome originally meant um, rhetoric that is sort of um, uh, deliberately awe-inspiring, at least in the way that Burke thought about it, can wake people up to look at their situation therein more clearly. Because sometimes um, you can kind of get in a, in a destructive cycle in which events are boring, so speech around them is boring, and people kind of get lulled to sleep and they can't deal with the crisis that arrives in their events because they're kind of asleep. Um, and Burke's thinking of language, at least, thinking around language at least, was the idea that language itself can sometimes take priority, that the right kind of pursuit of sublimity um, can shake people up so much that they sort of kind of sit up in their seats, that their vision is clarified, that they look at political events with a new kind of sense of uh, perception and clarity um, and can judge where they are a little bit better. Um, and I don't know if that's kind of, I, you know, I think that's an empirical question as much as a theoretical question. But you know, right. to the extent that kind of the, the, the tacitian speculation about this is also theoretical, um, what if um, boring times lead to boring rhetoric? Um, I think it's kind of fair to respond to it with another what if question, which is, what if language can have priority sometimes and can wake us up um, when we've been uh, too bored to respond to the problems in front of us? Um, right. Well, I yeah. mean, those are two distinct cases, right? Because um, I, maybe I can muddy the waters by throwing in the grinding structural problems. Uh -huh. But there's one thing to say, look, we, we want boring politics. Mm -hmm. Exciting politics are bad mm -hmm. because people are usually dying. Right. Um, and, and therefore... If if the cost of it is that we have boring rhetoric, fine. Right. But then there's a separate point that you're making that I also think is really interesting and quite plausible, which is that when there are real problems that people are asleep to, mm -hmm. rhetoric may be the way to wake them up. Right, right. I see what you mean. Um, and, and maybe we need some excitement when there is a de facto crisis that people are not noticing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's more of identify, identifying it. Yeah. Know? So I think in the first case, you're talking about kind of the, the which is kind of a, the more challenging response is like the boring times, uh, boring speech, everything's great. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I guess the only well, time, I yeah. mean, isn't that what we wanted modern government to be? Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> right? That's sort of so right. we don't want, we don't want this Athenian, this fickle Athenian mob going left and right, making all these decisions, going to war for glory, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It would, let's do some, you know, let's do a cost benefit analysis. Let's uh, do that in committee. Let's analyze it and then just explain the facts to people. And, uh, you know, no rat, no no quick turns. Yeah, and so there's no reason to get everyone standing up. A standing ovation is probably a sign people are not doing things at the right pace. Yeah, that's sort of the, that's sort of the Enlightenment dream, right? That that's the sort of Hume right. essay uh, that that politics may be reduced to a science. That that's sort of the goal of of that kind of school of mm -hmm. thought. And I guess you know the, the the way I think about it is I think that that's, um, you know, uh, it's good in theory to take the tour of the podcast. <laughs> I, I think that that's. I think that kind of in theory makes sense, but I also think that, you know, when you talk about boring politics, it always raises for me the question of boring to who. It, it's always that right. uh, boring in whose terms. Um, 
I would say that um, even in situations in which politics are kind of normal uh, and technocratic and ordinary and not dramatic, um, there are still uh, power differentials. There are still haves and have nots. There are still winners and losers. There's, there's still justice and injustice. Um, and politics, I think, can be very outwardly boring, maybe because you live in kind of a sort of um, ideal state of good government, or, or maybe because you kind of live in a state of uh, ideological hegemony, uh, and that the, the powers that be um, have so much control over the ideological apparatus and so are so good at, um, at uh, generating consent that there isn't really a challenge to, um, uh, to uh, their priorities and their sense of what makes politics boring. You know, I think about, you know, I go back to the original way that Tacitus raises point, and this is kind of why I attributed it to the guy in the dialogue rather than Tacitus himself, because there's a lot of like, you know, did he really mean this? Was he speaking in someone's mouthpiece? Uh, Tac you know, supposedly Tacitus is a guy who hated um, uh, the, the Roman principate who hated the, the, the empire, who wanted to be, uh, who wanted to return to Republican politics, uh, and has this guy in the dialogue say, well, now that we have kind of the wisest citizen in the state running things, we now we have administration mm. rather than politics, uh, things are boring. And it's good that speech isn't exciting because that, those were the bad old times in the Civil War, um, which is tough because on the one hand, it has a flavor of plausibility. But on the other hand, the, you know, the politics he's describing as boring is the politics of kind of domination by the, the emperor and his household, is the politics of, um, um, I think Tacitus also wrote this kind of famous line, that they, they create a desert and they call it peace. It's this idea that you can have boring, peaceful politics um, because your government is so good that no one has an objection, or also because the kind uh -huh. of domination of the ruling class is, is so complete uh, that no one thinks to raise an objection, and I get the silence of despotism. Yeah, and sorry, it's hard to say which situation you're in. Certainly, that that's not what the kind of Enlightenment critique of rhetoric was aiming at. But I also think that a kind of it's hard to tell from within a moment of boring politics whether politics is, um, uh, you know, whether it's uh, boring for reason A or boring for reason B. I mean, you know, I say that as someone who grew up in the nineties. At a time of kind of the, <laughs> the, 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 the the famously boring end of history. Yeah, exactly. Which which turned out not to have been rich. Right. Yeah. Which which like um which which makes you wonder what kind of boring were we living through? <laughs> um yeah. So enough about boring rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Well, um I want to talk I mean I brought that up by saying that there's a few ways that contemporary political rhetoric seems to be going wrong. Uh and the other big one is there's a lot of complaints not about boring establishment rhetoric, but about insurgent populist rhetoric. So there's a lack of decorum. There's an end of civility. You've got Trump making fun of people and throwing insults around. People are willing to say things that they wouldn't say before. Uh, people are getting, you know, speaking in very conversational, not stylized terms. So there's this this other critique of political rhetoric that's, I think, talking about a completely different kind of rhetoric. So why do we have that trend as as well right I, now? Yeah, I, th I think we have it in kind of a response to the kind of pathologies of establishment or, or mainstream rhetoric that, that I've been talking about, the, the kind of pathologies mm -hmm. of risk aversion. Because I think that the one thing that is so that stands out to me about the kind of populist uh, Trumpian, to take a, a kind of clear example, rhetoric, is this the, the, the appearance of um, uh, risk acceptance, the, the appearance of, of tremendously dangerous speech that could supposedly sink this guy at any kind of given moment. And this is sort of the reason that I, I think that back when he was first 
getting on the national stage as a, as a presidential candidate in 2015, 2016, anytime Trump opened his mouth, every network would cut to him because the, the presumption was that um, he'd say something fun to watch. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. <laughs> and he's going to he's going to put his foot in it. And he's going to say something that's going to be so bad it's going to destroy his career. We're all going to watch this happen in real time. And it's the, the kind of tightrope walk of watching it happen. But um, I think the problem is, is that w- with hindsight, it's turned out that a lot of this appearance <laughs> of, 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 of you're right of walking the tightrope is that there's very clearly a net like one foot below the tightrope, which is that he's not really taking on those risks. He's, he's speaking to um, he's speaking to audiences that are primed to agree with him. He quotes, you know, he has so many scandals at the same time that nothing exactly breaks through. Um, and also, you know, he's I, you know, I, I think I say this in the book. But when, when I say that he's incapable of shame, I'm not saying this, that, that, that he's a bad and unvirtuous person. I'm saying that shame is an important part of public speech and that it kind of means you're responding to negative feedback mm-hmm. from the audience. If you don't have that stimulus, if you, kind of can't, if you can't feel that, like you can't, someone might not be able to feel pain. because right. they have So Demosthenes, damage. he was trembling in his heart and in every limb because... He had a strong sense of shame. If he got booed, he would have been mortified. Right. He would have and it might have been career ending. Right. Whereas Trump, he gets booed, he loves it, and his support just becomes stronger. Exactly. So the incentives are all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think he responds to maybe boos from his kind of particular audience. He kind of courts a, you know, his his for for his base. But I think you know there are other people that simply don't have kind of standing to object to him as a uh, as a you know political figure. So really, like the the risk that he takes on. In any given appearance, it seems enormous at first glance. Uh, in reality, I think not so much. So I think it kind of gives the appearance of what we actually would like rhetoric to look like. So when I think about um, why why do people connect with with figures like him, I think it's because they seem like they are offering something that we are missing, uh, even though they aren't really doing that. Um, but I think that they are filling. Um, they're meeting a real need. The need is out there. Uh, they're just kind of meeting it in kind of a cheap sort of fast food way to kind of mix my metaphors. Right. Okay. So we have Trump and different other sort of demagogic type speakers because mainstream political speech is too boring. It's just platitudes. It's already been focus group to death. There's, we're not hearing anything there. So someone comes on, they're saying things that sound risky, but you're saying, you know, it, it, people are looking for that risk, but there's actually no risk at all. So it's not what it looks like. I want to put to you a different reason. It's not so much. I, okay, so why is it about risk? So for me, I will watch, I will read Trump's tweets or watch him speak for pure entertainment value mm-hmm. more than I would most other politicians. I would rather watch Joe Biden speak off script and spin me a yarn about uh, life in the 50s mm-hmm. or or uh, then watch him from the speaking from the teleprompter. I'd rather watch uh, Rob Ford take a local example than his brother Doug Ford as premier. Right. Because he's going to say something that doesn't sound completely scripted when the script writers, no offense, uh, are writing really boring material. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, it, is the appeal of Joe Biden mumbling a yarn really that people think he's going to fall on his face and ruin his career? Or is it just more interesting to hear? Uh, same with Trump, because after a while, everyone saw the trick. No one thought that him being shocking was ever going to ruin his career. That's what had made his career. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's as little more to it than we just need to see people take risks, isn't it? 
Yeah, that- yeah, I, th- I think that's fair to say. I, I don't maybe maybe I'm exaggerating when I'm saying that the costs of Trump doing something badly are going to ruin his career because obviously you know we, we've been through many years of this and he has not said the career ruining thing. I mean he he um uh, he, he tried to overthrow the government. He's he's the leading uh, Republican nominee in the next election, right? So yeah, yeah. So I think that maybe that's the, not the right way to put the kind of downside risk in terms uh, the terms in which to put the downside risk. But I still would say that, that part of the interesting thing, at, you know, at least speaking intuitively, watching Joe Biden tell that yarn or watching kind of uh, Trump do one of his kind of freeform riffs, um, yeah, is this idea that it kind of, um, it's just this quality of spontaneity. So you don't know where it's going to go. It could it could pay off tremendously. It could have a great kind of ending or a punchline. Um, it could end up uh, in a, it could just end up going badly and giving you kind of that sense of aesthetic cringe. Um, it could end up, you know, embarrassing the speaker. I may, it might at the extreme in his career. It probably won't in any given instance. But I do think that there's kind of that sense of unpredictability that includes consequences and sanctions for the speaker. Um, that most mainstream political speech is sort of designed from the standpoint of avoiding. Um, that it kind of starts in that standpoint and works backwards. You know, I think that the standpoint that I think mainstream political speech starts from is. Um, um, what 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 words work? What does the audience want to hear? Um, what uh, what what words move the lever or press the button that results in the political result I want with the smallest cost to me? Uh, what are they? And I'm going to go out there and say them. So I think that the whole performance is kind of given, um, you know, you know, from the perspective of the the opposite of spontaneity, from the opposite of um, um, from the from a position of trying to maximize certainty for the speaker rather than trying to maximize uh, interest um, and engagement from, mm-hmm. from the people listening. You know, I think that that's why you know, a lot of people have talked about um, you know, Trump, for instance, uh, as a humorist, or talked about his kind of the connection between demagogic power and, and joking and humor. I think one of the things that, that makes humor work in general is that it's unexpected. You know, punchlines are surprises. They're when statements go in directions you're not expecting, and they kind of trigger your flight or fight response, and then they get resolved in a way that makes you laugh. Or at least that's kind of one theory of what humor does, the kind of incongruity idea of humor. Um, and I think you can kind of generalize that to say that part of what makes this kind of non-mainstream or non-scripted, or even if it's Joe Biden kind of rambling speech, is this quality of unpredictability, which which includes the, the possibility of it going badly for the speaker. But even if it doesn't go that badly, even if kind of, you know, Joe Biden kind of um, uh, rambles on and, 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 and embarrasses himself, isn't going to end his career, still might make him look kind of like a bit kind of doddering out of it, or in Trump's case, um, look as if um, look as if he said something kind of with, with this utter sense of shamelessness. Um, in either case, I still think that, that there's a kind of quality of putting more on the line than the ordinary speaker kind of wants to put on the line. Uh-huh. And to just to uh, say something about shamelessness, yes, Trump is shameless in what he'll say, but I think there's also a certain kind of if you think putting it on the line by saying what you think is something worthy of respect, then there's a certain kind of shamelessness to be willing to get up on a speech and get up, you know, before a crowd and read a speech of statements that have been focus grouped just because you think that people will like to hear them to uh-huh. try and press buttons in that way. That's like utterly shameless from a certain point of view uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think that makes sense. Um. Okay, so I've talked about you know, we've talked about two ways that contemporary rhetoric is going badly. One is that established rhetoric can be incredibly boring. 
too, that there's this other kind of rhetoric that people seem to be really interesting, is more entertaining, but um, nonetheless uh, isn't giving us what we want from rhetoric and also might be damaging civility and decorum. Um, what would it take to have good rhetoric or eloquence now, and do we want it? Hmm. Do we want it? Well, I, th I think we do want it to the extent that we are still in a situation um, in which you know politics is uh, um, is asymmetrical, in which few speak and many listen. You know, to the extent that that's the way that our polit you know, politics is, to the extent we live in. You know, Jeff Green talks about politics and spectatorship. To the extent that we are uh, as ordinary people, in many ways, spectators to politics and not actual political actors. I do think we want our politics to be. Um, more unpredictable, um, more kind of shaped by by um, rhetorical risk, and, and therefore kind of more eloquent uh, because of the side effects I talk about, which kind of tend in the direction of political equality. I think, um, but how do we get there? Well, that's 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 tough. Um, I I think that one thing I'm trying to develop in my next um, um, in my next project, which I'm still kind of I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, but is the way in which a lot of the Ciceronian ideas of rhetorical risk that I, I talk about in this book are developed in response, not just to kind of this argument within the Roman elite, but in response to, to pressure from the bottom up. So that tells me something that, that, that it's, it's not politicians spontaneously deciding that they want to be more risky or spontaneously deciding they want to pursue eloquence or spontaneously mm -hmm. you know, developing the virtue to pursue it. It's that these things develop when there are publics who, who demand it. Uh, these things develop when there is a public demand for politicians to behave in a certain kind of way. So I guess that tells me, no, I don't have an answer how, to, how this is gonna happen, <laughs> right? Because if, if I did, I'd be doing it instead of writing about it, right? Yeah, but and I, I might say that the, the way you get publics who will make these demands is to, write or to have publics who like have some kind of institution to make themselves heard. Yeah, sure. And I, I think that, I think yeah. that, that, that eloquence happens when publics place a, a value um, on eloquence. I think Cicerone eloquence develops uh, in a context of, of bottom-up pressure. And I guess what I'm, what I'm writing about, hopefully in my next book, is about, um, hopefully about race and American oratory and the way these kind of um, questions about um, eloquence and access to the public sphere uh, develop um, when people from oppressed groups, and especially here I'm thinking about uh, black orators in the 19th century, like Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass, um, claim the right to be heard in the public sphere um, in a way they hadn't previously been heard before, and how this changes right. the way the public thinks about eloquence. But that, that's all of the project. But I guess my point is, is that if anything is going to change this, it's going to be because um, there, there's public pressure on politicians to be less predictable for reasons of promoting um, more equity in, the, in, in political communication, more equity in politics. Um, is it going to happen? Who knows? But I do think that it's not going to happen spontaneously because politicians suddenly decide that they want to start sounding more um, Ciceronian right. or Kennedy-esque or whatever it is. Well, I when we we spoke a little earlier about the different contexts they have in which to speak, or if you even think about the career tra trajectory of a contemporary politician, eloquence doesn't seem to matter that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it did kind of for Obama. He gave a famous speech, and then you know he was kind of uh, a big prospect to yeah. be the presidential candidate. But I mean, if you what's the path to becoming an MP, right? And then what's the path to getting into cabinet? And then what's the path to becoming leader? It's it's not generally through speech making. And once you are 
in office, as you said, speeches on the legislative floor, on parliament floor, they're not going to persuade anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, they're for sound bites for television. Uh, so, so maybe people who have independent, you know, if they're going out and doing rallies with their supporters, that's an occasion maybe for rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But even then, you know, the chances are you're giving it to supporters are not going to boo you. So right. it just seems that there's not even many contexts. Like right. even if a politician wanted to be more uh, eloquent, where would they get the practice? The, right. It's not part of their life the way it was in Greece or in Rome. Right. And I think that, yeah, I, th- I think the way, I, I think the way you describe it makes a lot of sense to me is this idea that I, I, you could think of it as kind of like a satisfying thing in, in the political culture you're talking about. There might be a kind of minimal bar that you have to clear. You can't make an ass for yourself. You can't, you have to be able to string sentences together. But I think few people, uh, you think about Obama as maybe a partial example, exception, yeah. but few people kind of ascend to political office on the strength of that, you know, simply because that's right. That's not what our political system um, selects for or values. Um, so is that... Um, is that a good thing? Are we selecting for other good things that we, that we like instead of that? I mean, yeah, maybe, but I, I, I think that I guess part of the case I'm trying to make in the book is that mm-hmm. when you stop selecting for this, when you stop paying attention to this as, as something that, that a um, public figure ought to cultivate and, and develop, um, you lose out on things as well. And I think part of what you lose out on um, is, is the ability to kind of engage the public uh, from a bit more of a perspective of, of, of equals to treat them with that kind of regard and respect mm-hmm. that takes their views seriously, which is, I think, kind of what rhetoric is all about. So it's, you know, I, a lot of people think of eloquence as kind of a way of, 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 uh, of dominating, of, of, you know, of, of generating ascendancy over the people you're listening to. You know, but I really think about it in different terms. I think about it as, as caring enough about the uh, individuality of the people you're speaking to uh, to try to impress them, to try to win them over, to try to um, create some kind of degree of beauty in public life. Um, if you're not, if you're not trying to win them over, that means you don't really care what they think. Yeah, I think so. And I, I or, or you care what they think to the extent that you can kind of instrumentalize it, that you can kind of figure out what they think beforehand and then deliver, you know, the, the words that you think are going to work. Um, but again, that's not, uh, you know, that that's the kind of thing that if we saw it in interpersonal relationships. Um, we would think about it as, as sort of. Um, you know, tremendously manipulative or instrumentalizing. You know, imagine that I'm sure people do this. Uh, you you get matched with on a dating app, and imagine that you then you know kind of use an algorithm to figure out exactly what kind of conversation topics they would like, and then drop them into conversation. Um, if you did that in an interpersonal relationship, I think you'd, you'd be you'd be a creep. Um, uh, but I th- I think that this is essentially what a lot of political communication boils down to. Um, uh-huh. And I think you know because we have a political culture in which um, the tradition of eloquence doesn't really get valued in the way that I've described. I, I think you have politicians who are much more inclined to instrumentalize the public. You know, so again, I think eloquence is is intrinsically valuable because it's it's aesthetically beautiful to me. It's important to me to have a public sphere in which um, we have aesthetic values that are recognized in the way we talk and, and comport ourselves. Mm-hmm. But even if you don't, even if you write that off, I think that the pursuit of it has some kind of valuable uh, knock-on political side effects. Um, of the kind that I've been talking about. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I would love to, I would love to be interested when I hear politicians speak as well. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe um, not. Maybe it means we're like heading towards doom. Right. 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 Yeah. Or, you know, maybe, maybe the fact that things are so boring now, mm-hmm. uh, means that there's big opportunities 
for people who do move towards eloquence. And this might be what it took, you know, that anyone who speaks at all well will stand out so much that uh, there might be some incentives for it now. Possibly, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on, Rob Goodman. Um, Thanks for writing the book, Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions. Is that right? That's right. And that comes out this year, or is it? Is it? It came out uh, just a few weeks ago. Okay, great. Yeah. So anyone who is interested in the conversation, go have a look for it uh, wherever you get your academic tomes. Um, thanks a lot for being on, and uh, yeah, hope to hope to hear about your next project. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for a great talk. Today, I want to send a big shout out to my man, Ethan Denny. Congratulations on absolutely killing it in your first philosophy course ever. And also, thank you for deciding to support us on Patreon. We hope we're of some use to you. If you, dear listener, would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash goodintheory, rate and review the show on your podcast app, grab someone else's phone, and subscribe to Good In Theory so they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.